start reading Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. In the TV show, Everybody Loves Raymond, when he first meets Deborah, they they start talking about going out to dinner, and they they mention a Chinese food place that both of them have eaten at. And Deborah or Raymond's response to that is, he says, "Yeah, that lady down there, she's kind of she's crazy." And she said, "What do you mean she's crazy?" And he says, "She's always out there yelling that thing at you, Abanada, Abanada." And Deborah says, "Well, you you know what she's saying, right?" She says, "She's saying, have a nice day." <laughs> but but the, all that he could hear is a benada, you know, so he didn't know what to what to make of it. Well, you know, when we come to this point in the book of Hebrews, uh, what we're looking at is a benediction. It's a kind of a, a normal way to close out a letter. At the same time, it's not just have a nice day. There's a lot of content within this benediction. What we have a tendency to do when we get to the end of a book like this or the end of a letter, we just read that kind of thing as if it's just saying like have a nice day. If we're not careful, we get to Abinadah and we miss all the content and the meaning that is in this benediction. And there is a lot. They usually wish you grace and peace. That's common. But this one actually has quite a bit of information within it. And so we want to make sure that we take advantage of that information. Because if you think about this, think about the fact that within this letter that he's written to the Hebrews, this is the last bit of information that he's going to share with them. This is what closes out the letter. This is his final wish, his final uh, greeting to them. He packs it pretty full. What does he pack it with? He's wanting them to be successful. He's wanting them to continue on just as he has throughout the whole letter. Remember, the whole letter has contained comparisons of Jesus Christ to everything that the Jewish people held dear. These people were Jewish Christians that were tempted to go back to the temple that was still in place, go back to the old priesthood and the sacrifices because of the pressures that were being put upon them. And so he takes Jesus and he compares them to prophets and he compares them to angels and he compares them to Moses and he compares them to Aaron and the priesthood and he compares the new covenant to the old covenant. And all the way through he keeps pointing out that, look, Jesus Christ is superior. No matter what kind of pressures your life is under, no matter how appealing it looks to turn back to your old life and going back to the old way, Jesus Christ is always worth clinging to. You always have it better in Christ, even if it means some pain and suffering along the way. At the same time, he was warning them. And he had told them that they had started out well and that he thought better things of them than, than for example, when he compared them to their forefathers who had wandered away from God in the wilderness, who for 40 years continually tempted God, continually turned their back on God. He said, but you know what? I think better things of you, things that belong to salvation. But now that they had started to fail, they'd started to weaken. Well, when we get to this last part, he's given them this last little bit of a formula for how they can be strengthened in their life 
and continue on, a, on that path successfully, well, as we look at it, it basically boils down to two things. There's a, an equipping that goes on. In fact, we're going to look at the equipper and the, the equipping. In verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace... Now I'm going to stop right there and we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Because it's going to give us several different descriptors of God in, in here. And I don't want to get it, I don't want us to lose what he's saying by focusing on all that detail just yet. I want the big picture here. So notice he's focusing on God. May the God of peace... Now skip down to verse 21. Verse 21, it says, Equip you with everything good. You see, that's the point that he's making. God would equip them. And then all the rest of verse 20 are different details that he puts in there about God and Jesus Christ that he wants us to focus on. But the main point is that God would equip them so that they could follow that path successfully, so that they could successfully be faithful to Christ and live out those Christian virtues in their life, being faithful to Him. That's only going to happen if God equips us. It's God working in us and through us. Now, obviously, we're responsible for a big part of it. If you remember back, the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, he said, look, with all God has equipped you with, you should have grown by now. But you haven't. So it definitely takes effort and involvement on our part. But the fact of the matter is, we are dependent on God equipping us, giving us what we need in Jesus Christ in order to follow that path successfully. By equipping, it just means giving us everything that we need. You know, last week I talked to you a little bit about my uh, early career in carpentry and how I worked for a company out in Washington called uh, King Brothers Construction. And you know, that was one of the things that I think that that company was very good at, was equipping their crews. He provided all the nail guns, he provided all the air compressors and all the hoses and all the staplers and all the saws and all the saw blades and all the nails and all the staples And before you went to a job, he visited the job site and made sure that there was electricity there to be able to use. If not, they got a generator there to make sure that the lumber was arriving on time, to make sure that we had the blueprints to be able to do it with. Every Thursday, we'd go into the office to pick up the checks for our crew to to be able to pay them on Friday. When we got there, you know what was there? There was pallets of nails and staples so that we could take whatever we needed for the job. There was like big bolts on the wall full of saw blades all the way out so we could always have plenty of sharp saw blades. He'd have a guy there from Senko. Senko is a brand of nail gun and and fasteners. He'd have a guy there every week from Senko so that if you had anything go wrong with any of your tools, you could bring it in and he'd fix your tool while you were there right then just to make sure you had everything you need to be able to do what you had to do. That's exactly what God does for us. By God equipping us, is saying God giving you what you need to be able to live the life that he wants you to live to be able to bring honor and glory to him and his name. Now, as we go through this first part and we look at who the equipper is as he identifies himself, we want to keep in mind that it's aiming toward equipping us. It adds some depth to our understanding here as we look at this passage. Now, we notice, first of all, that our equipper is a stabilizing God. He's a stabilizing God. The reason that I put that is because it identifies him as a God of peace. But you know what, when you look specifically at the situation that these people are going through, what would that communicate to them as the God of peace? 
If we look back at chapter 10, verses 32 through 35, we see that these people are experiencing the plundering of their properties, the taking of their homes. Some of them have been thrown into prison. Some of them have been publicly humiliated. In other words, their life experience that they're going through right now is not overly peaceful. They're going through some circumstances, some traumas in their life that would not seem peaceful. And the first way that he identifies God in this situation is he says, may the God of peace, now think about that, the God of peace equip you. The God of peace is going to give you what you need. You see, that means in the circumstances that I'm going through, in the troubled times that I'm going through, he's still the God of peace. When we see a great example of this is when we see the Apostle Paul. He's in prison while he's writing the book of Philippians. But you know what a predominant theme within the book of Philippians is? Joy. The Apostle Paul is in prison for his faith there, but he's completely at peace with it. In part of that epistle, he says, you know what, I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. But he was completely at peace with it either way. In fact, he said, you know what, it would be far better for me to die and go be with Christ, but it's more needful for you that I stay. So I'm content to stick around as well, because that's probably what's going to happen. He's completely at peace. These people's life was in turmoil. They were broken relationships because of their faith in Christ. They were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Publicly humiliated because of their faith in Christ. Homes taken. Imprisoned. All these different things different people were experiencing. A time of turmoil, but God brings stability. He brings that peace. What is that statement that they say? Sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes He calms His servant. Right? He doesn't always calm the storm. Sometimes He calms us. But that's the point. He is the God of peace. He's made peace between us and Him through the blood of the cross. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 2, when Jesus is being compared to the priesthood of Melchizedek, Um, Melchizedek is called the the King of Salem, which is translated then King of Peace. And if you look back into Hebrews chapter 12, verse uh, 13 or 14, um, he says that we're supposed to pursue peace with all people. God is a God of peace. He brings peace into our lives in even very turmoiled times. So he's a stabilizing God. Not only is he a stabilizing God, he's an overcoming God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. He's also the God who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the the foundational principle of the Gospel and, and of Christianity. If you take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you take away Christianity. It does not exist anymore. It's not just a philosophy. It is, it is, it is redemption. And it is uh, overcoming sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you go back to the very beginning of the church and you follow it through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter has a chance to stand up and preach at Pentecost, what does he say? It's this Jesus Christ whom you hung on the cross, God raised Him from the dead. And at least twice in that sermon, he mentions that fact. That That is the key fact, the key point of Christianity. You go into the very next chapter, in chapter 3, when Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and there's a beggar sitting at the temple who's never been able to walk. He's been lame from birth. And Peter heals him, and he stands up and walks. And a crowd gathers to see what happened. What does Peter do? He says, it's not by this mob our power that he stands before you. It's through Christ, whom you crucified, and God raised him from the dead. 
And then they get arrested in Acts chapters 4 and 5 twice. And on both occasions, what do they point out to the religious leaders? God raised him from the dead. That's what it's all about. Even when you get toward the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 23, the Apostle Paul is on trial. The Apostle Paul will stand up and testify on his own behalf and say, it is because of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here today. The resurrection of the dead is the key factor of Christianity. But what does the resurrection speak to? The resurrection speaks to victory. The resurrection speaks to overcoming. The resurrection is the reason that these people, though suffering for their faith right now, should continue to hold on to that faith because these, as the Apostle Paul would say in a different place, light and momentary afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed in us. See, the resurrection means we overcome. The resurrection means we win. The resurrection means we have a bright future no matter what the present situation. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's overcoming death and overcoming sin. We also see that we have a providing God. He says He's brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, He refers to Him as the great shepherd of the sheep. Just as Jesus referred to Himself as the good shepherd, and talk about it as the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep, just as he would fulfill that which was promised kind of through David as the shepherd originally. What is the point that he's trying to make with comparing him or referring to him as a good shepherd? It's provision. If you think about it, a shepherd, that's what he does. He provides for the sheep. He provides food. He provides water. He provides protection. He provides leadership. He's constantly leading the sheep to where they need to be for the best food source, for the best water source. He's constantly protecting them from the predators that are in the area. That's what a shepherd does. God is our provider. He's our protection. And so these people, when they're going through this tough time, and they were going through a tough time, they need to learn to rely, to trust. Trust God to continue to provide for them. It's the same thing with our struggles. When... When our, when our health is threatened, who are we trusting in? I know a lot of times when I'm praying for people and I'm praying for different health needs and things like that, which is common, which is often, I find myself saying, Lord, all right, um, thank you for the doctors. I thank you for the skills that are out there. Thank you for the technology that we have. We've got a lot of things that are beneficial to us health-wise today that weren't in the past. I said, but Lord, I want you to know one thing. I'm not trusting in that. I'm thankful for that. We'll make use of that. Those that are sick need a physician, even as Jesus would point out. But you know what? Um, I'm trusting in you. And you know, that's, that's what we need to look to God as our provider. When the economy gets a little bit shaky, it's not the economy, it's not the economy that puts food on my plate. I'm thankful for a good economy and the things that we get to enjoy out of it. But the fact of the matter is, it's God that puts food on my plate. It's God that takes care of us and provides for us. And that's exactly what he's pointing out with them as being the, the good shepherd of the sheep or the great shepherd he refers to him as, of the sheep. You know, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9-11, through 11, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You know, Jesus pointed out that we should be, we should be trusting we should be relying upon God and not, not our external things, not our money, not our bank accounts, not our economies. It's God that, that provides and takes care of us. 
And then also, he's an atoning God. He's an atoning God. Because the last thing that it points out about him within the, the verse 20 is by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. You know, everything was ratified with blood. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And as we went through the book of Hebrews, we, we recognized and he pointed out to us that the blood of bulls and of goats can't take away our sins. It's only through the blood of Christ that we have atonement for our sins, that our sins can be forgiven and, and paid for. He also pointed out in, verse, in chapters 8 through 10 that it was the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Notice it refers to it as the, the blood of the eternal covenant. Remember through the book of Hebrews, we saw that he, he referred to the old covenant and the new covenant. And he looked back to the time of Jeremiah when Jeremiah would refer to this new covenant that God would make with, his, with the house of Israel. And he said in, in calling the new covenant new, he makes the old one old. In other words, it's, it's old. It's, it's vanishing away. It's becoming ob, obsolete. When he talked about the elements that were contained in the covenant, like the, like the sacrifices and the temple or the tabernacle he, he focused on, and the, the, the priesthood and, the, and the, the sacrifices and that whole system of worship, he said that all those things were, remember, they were a pattern. They were a, they were a copy. They weren't the reality. You see, they were, they were temporary in nature as opposed to this eternal covenant that we receive. The covenant that we receive, this new covenant in Jesus Christ, is, is the, and through His blood, is the blood of the eternal covenant. Even the first covenant, the old covenant, was meant to picture the second covenant. It was meant to point to, to lead us to, the fulfillment of it, which would be in this second covenant. So we have an atoning God. Now let's think about those um, before we go on to the next part, as we look at the equipping and the way God describes the equipping that He's going to do in our lives, let's apply each of those to those things. As we think about that, we think about a stabilizing God. The God of peace is the one that will equip us for what we have to go through in our life. That's, that's pretty awesome when you think about it. And then you take the second one, an overcoming God. A God who raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one equipping us in our life, this overcoming God can equip us to overcome. This providing God, this great shepherd of the sheep, the one that provides, that's His nature, to provide for us. It's also His joy to provide for us as a, as a father does for his children. That providing God equips us for the things that we need to go through in our lives. And lastly, that atoning God which had this plan in place from the foundation of the world to bring the atonement that was purchased for us through the blood of Jesus Christ, to bring this forgiveness of sins into our life, that God equips us. We can't find really a greater list of somebody to equip us. Well, as then we move on to the second element, as we see in the equipping in verse 21. And He equip you with everything good that you may do His will. May He equip you with everything good. The first thing that he, he points out is the sufficiency. God's equipping of us is completely sufficient for everything that we need to do in our life. He says that He is equipping us with what? With everything good. He's not holding anything back that we need. 
God will work in us everything that we need to be able to do what He wants us to do to bring honor and glory to His name. That's encouraging to me. If I slip and fall, if I, if I struggle along the ways, that's on me. It's not on God. And it's on me to say, you know what? What am I missing here? What did I miss? What did God give me? Because I know He's given it to me. What, is it, what did He give me that I didn't make use of? Because I should have succeeded in this. All the resources are at our disposal to be able to accomplish what we need to accomplish in our life. You know, we find this in other places in the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So it says everything that we need in this life is found within the knowledge of God. The next verse will go on to say that knowledge of God is found within the Word of God. God has given us completely sufficient resources to live the way that He wants us to live. You know, in James chapter 1, the Bible says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God has guaranteed us, if you seem to lack wisdom to know how to respond in a situation or deal with a situation, He says, just come and ask Me. I'll give it to you liberally. I'll give it to you abundantly. And so we have this great source of wisdom that God gives us. In other words, the point is it's completely sufficient for whatever we're going through at that time. The equipping that He gives us is enough. Secondly, the equipping is purposeful. It's purposeful because right from there it says that you may do His will. In other words, there's a reason that God is equipping us. He has a task that He wants us to do. Just like I was talking about earlier with that company that I used to build for, they equipped us to build a house. They wanted a house framed. And so they made sure we had everything that we needed to frame a house. They didn't care about anything else. They didn't bring us any plumbing parts or anything like that. That's the plumber's end of things. But to do everything that they wanted us to do, they made sure we had everything that we needed. And that's the point here. God is saying, I'm giving you everything that you need to do what? To do my will. To accomplish God's will. You see, that's, that's really our responsibility. That's our priority in our life. We're, the, we're not the shepherd. We're the sheep. We're the followers. We need to be following God's will for our life. And that's exactly what God has promised us, that as you follow my will, I give you sufficiently everything that you need to accomplish it. But you know what the awesome thing about that is? is because that's where we have purpose. We have purpose. Life is not just about our own satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. It's a, it, life is not just about our own entertainment and comfort. We have a purpose. There, there's a will of God for our life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 puts us this way. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God lays out, He's prepared beforehand the good works that He wants us to do in our life. The will of God that He wants us to fulfill in our life. And He makes sure we're completely equipped to be able to do that will. To carry out those functions. That means I have purpose. And you know what the awesome thing about that is? It is in recognize our purpose that we often find our happiness and our satisfaction in life. If we fulfill our purpose, that's satisfying. That's a real blessing indeed. Then also we see that He does it intimately. He is equipping us intimately because it, it talks about Him working in us. Him working in us. And then a little bit later, uh, skip kind of one phrase and go down a little bit, and then it says, through Jesus Christ. 
So it talks about as we look at God equipping us for the life that He wants us to live, He does it intimately. It's God working inside of you. It's that Holy Spirit that He puts in you, that indwells you, that you relate to Him. And you do it through Jesus Christ. I think of uh, John chapter 15 as a great example of that. John chapter 15, Jesus gives them this analogy. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And what does a branch have to do in order to bear good fruit? A branch has to abide in the vine. It has to be tapped into the vine. It has to get its living in the vine. As long as it has a healthy connection to the vine, it produces good fruit. And that's the analogy of of chapter 15 that Jesus uh, points out of the Gospel of John, is that I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know how you're going to bear fruit? By being attached to me. By getting your sustenance, your dwelling, your attachment is to me. You see, that's an intimate relationship there. We are able to fulfill the life. We are able to be completely equipped for the life that we need to lead by God working in us through the power of the Holy Spirit and us being grafted into Jesus Christ, rightly related and connected to Him so that His life flows through us. You can't do this on your own. That's what a few thousand years of keeping the law taught us. Christ in us. It's an intimate thing. And then also, happily. I love this. As we continue to look on, it says, that which is pleasing in His sight. You know, earlier we were talking about things that we're thankful for, and I talked about my grandkids. And I love watching my grandkids. I love watching them play together, interact together. I love seeing what the different ones are, are prone to love to do. You know, different ones. You know, some like to do puzzles. Some like to uh, play a little bit more aggressive games. Some like to read. Some like to do all, all this whole gamut of different things. Annalise always twirling about and dancing about. And we'll have another little twirler around the house here pretty soon. But, um, you know, you know just, I, I, just love, I just love watching my grandkids. And you know what? Before that, I loved watching my kids. A while back it was Leah and Hannah twirling about the living room. And you get done watching a, a karate show, last, the three little ninjas or whatever, and then my three little ninjas would jump up and start fighting with each other. You know? and, and it was just, it was just, I got so much enjoyment out of just watching my kids, and now I get so much enjoyment out of watching my grandkids and, and watching my kids raise their kids. And you know what? That part of this verse says that's how God feels about us. When we fulfill... God's will in our life, we're fulfilling that which is pleasing to Him. He just, he just looks down on us and smiles as we bring honor and glory to His name. He just looks down on us and smiles as we, as we overcome things in our life and we wrestle with things in our life and we relate to one another as His children in His family. He's happy. He's happy. That's a quality of God. I don't know if I often go right to happiness when I think about God's qualities or attributes. But He's well pleased with us in this. That's kind of an awesome thought. And then lastly, gloriously. It says, to whom be glory forever and ever. You know, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. When you, when you think about the fact that our life, as God is equipping us, 
to live out His will in our life on this earth, we are participating in bringing glory to God that will never fail. To whom be glory forever and ever. We get to participate in that. As we strive and bring glory to His name, we're participating in the glory that He revels in throughout all of eternity.